1984, two Canadians from Toronto created a table game entitled Balderdash. The word Balderdash means senseless talk or nonsense. And if you played the game, you know that it's all about trying to confuse what is true from what is false, convincing the others that are playing that what is false is actually true. The best player to obfuscate and to confuse is the one who prevails. And if you play this game for an hour or two, pretty soon you're not sure you can trust anybody or anything. The game of Balderdash will do that to you. I love uh, the core question, its tagline, is it real or is it Balderdash? We live in an age where we're asking this question, I think. Is it real or is it balderdash? Oh, we have another little phrase we've learned over the last little bit. We call it fake news. The idea that one cannot really know what is true and what isn't. We now have more sources of information about more subjects than we ever have. A huge sweep about religion and politics, science and medicine, what it means to be a human being. In fact, it seems that we are, we are now at the place where we just can't commit to anything that's true. All is twisted, everything biased. What do we really know after all? I wonder if these words are proving true from Daniel chapter 12. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. We live in an era where there's loads of knowledge. And we are running around here and there trying to figure out how to make sense of it all. Trying to know, is it real or is it balderdash? And so I think that we find ourselves asking at least these two questions on a fairly regular basis. The first one, is it true when we hear something? Is it true? And second, if true, why does it matter? What's the point? This is Easter weekend where we celebrate a story, a story about the physical body of Jesus Christ who lived and who was hung on a Roman cross and who was placed in a tomb outside Jerusalem, a physical body that was then, the story goes, raised from the grave. And sometime later, the same physical body ascended into heaven. This is the story. And whether it's true or not, this is a big deal. The Apostle Paul says as much, 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith 
your religion, your Christianity, your Adventism is futile if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. We can argue about many things. We can claim that some things are mystery. We can consider different viewpoints. But this is true. If this Easter weekend we are celebrating a fairy tale, there is no point for this church. There is no reason for us to gather. We are fools, the Apostle Paul says. And so we have to ask these two questions of this story that we suggest is true. One, yes, is it true? And then second, if so, why does it matter? I want to spend a few minutes this morning considering the truthfulness of this story. Now, some might say, well, I'm a believer. I believe in the Bible. That's enough for me. Others who are doubters or skeptics might say, well, that's precisely why I don't believe in the resurrection story. It's just for people who believe in crazy things like the Bible. But I'm a logical person. I'm a scientist. That's not for me. In fact, if you are to turn on the news media this weekend, you will hear doubts, skepticism, scoffing at this story. And so for a few minutes, I want to walk through, for this is a story of history. I want us to think about it for just a few minutes this morning. Uh, from a historical perspective, did this actually happen? So here we go. First of all, when a historian goes to the ancient world, he or she looks for sources, documents that give evidence to a particular thing. For example, there is a, a document uh, called um, Tacitus Roman History. Historians have two documents or fragments of documents to work with. Two. We also have from the same era Caesar's Gallic War. We have nine or ten such documents to work with. Another a comparison, Livy's Roman history. Even more fortunate, some 20 documents, fragments of documents that historians have access to. So what do we have in terms of the New Testament, the body of historic literature in which we base this story? Well, let me show you. We actually have 500 such documents from that era, a ream. And another 500, we have 1,000. Actually, no, we have 1,500 from the original Greek sources. Uh, that's actually not completely true. We have 2,000. No, 2,500. No, that's not right. 3,000. 3,500. 4,000. Uh, 4,500. And there we have it. We have just over 5,000 
documents and fragments of documents in the original Greek that give support to historians to consider the story of the New Testament. Historians, historians, both those who believe in Jesus in terms of what we might believe as Christian, and those who do not, both theists and atheists, say this is gratuitous for the era. This is overwhelming. This is amazing that we have this amount of material to consider. And so historians of all stripes are in agreement about Jesus' history. Let me just give you a few names. Uh, Bart Ehrman, Jesus is the most important person in the history of the West. H.G. Wells, Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Kenneth Scott LaTourette, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. The great historian Will Durant, the apex of history, he asked, the three years that Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth. And once again, uh, Bart Ehrman, one of the most significant New Testament historians in the world today who describes himself as agnostic-leaning atheist, writes, the reality is that whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly did exist. There is not a single serious historian in the world, Christian, not Christian, atheist, theist, in the whole academic world of history of this period, who argues that Jesus was not a historical figure. Beyond that, that, there is agreement about a couple of facts about Jesus' life. One, the historians agree that Jesus lived in the 20s or 30s in Judea as a kind of Jewish religious figure. Agreement. Universal agreement that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. In fact, one scholar, Gerd Ludemann, an atheist, writes... Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Just a sample of the scholarship. And a third historical fact that historians are agreed upon is that the early followers of Jesus, the first Christians, claimed, claimed to have seen Jesus raised from the dead bodily. They had seen him with their eyes. They heard his voice with their ears. They touched his flesh. They tasted food with him. They smelled the sea air coming off Galilee together. Historians are in universal agreement that a group of people claimed that this, in fact, happened. In fact, just a couple examples from some liberal scholars Fredrickson writes, the disciples' conviction that they had seen the risen Christ is part of the historical bedrock, notice this, facts known past doubting. E.P. Sanders, also a, a liberal scholar, he writes that Jesus' followers and later Paul had resurrection experiences is, in my judgment, a fact. 
This is what historians call historical bedrock. There is no dispute that Jesus existed as a historical figure, that he was a Jewish religious figure in the 20s and 30s, that he died on a Roman cross, and that he had followers, the first Christians, who claimed to have seen him physically rise from the dead. This is agreed upon among the historical community. Which then raises the question, doesn't it? What of these eyewitnesses who made this claim? Were they lying? Were they delusional? Or were they telling the truth? I offer seven pieces of what uh, is for me compelling evidence that in fact they most certainly were speaking the truth about what they had observed. Number one, we discover a substantial pool of witnesses. This was not two guys in some closet somewhere in the dark coming up with this notion. No, we have hundreds of such eyewitnesses, Jewish, Greek, Gentile of various sorts, rich, poor, some who believed quickly, others who came in as skeptics. In fact, uh, we see Paul writing 1 Corinthians 15. What I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He, and here it is, appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me. The eyewitnesses make up a huge throng of diverse people. If they were lying, a bunch of them were lying, and if they were deceived or delusional, it was in mass that this took place. A second piece of evidence that I find compelling is the longevity and the durability of their conviction. It wasn't like they said, yes, Jesus is raised from the dead. Woo, that was a great weekend. And then three days later, they started to have regrets about what had happened over the weekend. They maintained this claim for weeks, months, years, decades. In fact, uh, John when he writes in the 21st chapter of the gospel bearing his name, when he writes, afterward Jesus appeared again to his disciples, John is writing some six decades after the fact. You see, we have a massive group of eyewitnesses who carries this conviction over the course of a lifetime. For me, that is compelling. This isn't just something that they came up with and then it faded quite quickly because they realized it wasn't true. A third argument that I find, um, again, compelling is that there was simply no Roman rationale for the story. Like, if they were trying to convince the Greco-Roman world, they did a very poor job of it. Uh, N.T. Wright uh, points out, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim, its central claim, resurrection, was known to be false. Many believed that the dead were non-existent, 
nobody believed in resurrection. Now, yes, in the larger world, people believed in ghosts. There were certain stories about people escaping the physical body. But some of you will remember that Plato, that Greek philosophy said that the goal was to escape the horrors of the physical body. The body was not something that you wanted to get back into. It's something that you wanted to run from. The last thing that a Roman or a Greek would say about a story about a resurrected human being would be great. This person has now been resurrected physically back into a body. In fact, uh, we read uh, Tacitus, uh, the Roman historian in his Annals of Imperial Rome, he calls Christianity the dangerous superstition. This business of being resurrected back in a physical body was distasteful to the Roman world. There was no advantage in telling this particular story. In a similar vein, uh, the fourth uh, point that, again, I find quite compelling is that there was simply no Jewish advantage. N.T. Wright uh, reminds us there are no traditions about a Messiah being raised to life. Did you know that? The Old Testament does not predict that a Messiah will come and will be raised from the grave into a physical body. It simply is not there. When we say things like, well, we know Jesus is the Messiah because he was raised from the grave, that is not in the Jewish mindset whatsoever. That would not be something that anyone would look to. In fact, I think this is fascinating. Uh, uh, the Christopher, uh, Christopher Evans, uh, another scholar, in his book Resurrection and the New Testament writes, there emerged in Christianity a precise, confident, and articulate faith in which resurrection has moved from the circumference, where it is in the Old Testament, out on the periphery, to the very center. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but other than some rail, uh, veiled references in Daniel and Ezekiel, resurrection is not a big deal in the Old Testament. You don't read, and Abraham died, but they, but they held on to the resurrection. David passed away, but they held on to the resurrection. No, resurrection is really out in the outskirts in the Old Testament. It's, it's the circumference. But I have a Bible that was unmarked in my office and I read through the whole New Testament about a month ago thinking about this sermon. And I underlined every allusion and reference to resurrection in the New Testament. I had to get a second pen. It's everywhere. It is at the very heart of the Christian faith. If the early Christians who were Jewish were trying to make a compelling argument to convince their own culture, they did a very poor job of it, which is compelling for me that they must have been, must have been telling the truth. Fifth is the presence of embarrassing details of fear and doubt. If you were trying to convince someone of a story, you would not include what they did. Here's just some examples. Uh, Matthew, when uh, they saw him, when the disciples saw Jesus uh, after the resurrection, they worshipped him, uh, but some doubted. I mean, to clean that part up. That doesn't help your case. Or, or Luke 24. Um, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. 
or John chapter 20, uh, but um, Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into the side, I will not believe. And throughout the resurrection story, and again, these stories are written decades later, they could have kind of polished this up a little bit, but no. They leave embarrassing details that might even cause you to disbelieve their claim. And it seems to me the strongest argument for that is that they were really trying to tell the truth of how the story went down. Related to this is a sixth excellent uh, observation by many, and that's the inclusion of female witnesses at the very center. To, to hear from a woman in a culture that was male-dominated and paternalistic would not be treated with great respect. But it's interesting, in all three synoptic Gospels, the women are the chief eyewitnesses that watch Jesus' body go into the tomb, and is women who are the primary witnesses that recognize that the tomb is now empty. Mark 16, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. You know what this is saying to a man in the first century? There's some scared, crazy women that have come up with this story. If you were simply trying to convince people, you would remove the women as the primary eyewitnesses in the first century. A final piece of compelling evidence uh, for me is that torturous death awaited for those who claimed belief. The Romans had a way of helping you change your story. The Romans had ways of helping you alter your testimony. They were the best at torture, at painful death. Acts chapter 5, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Against torture and the most horrible form of death, they stuck to their story, which for me is evidence that they were trying to tell it like it was. So, in a world of is it real or is it balderdash, did the story of the resurrection actually happen? For me, first of all, we have the historical bedrock. Jesus existed. He was a historical figure. He lived in the 20s and 30s as a Jewish religious figure. He died on a Roman cross. His followers believed that he had been raised from the grave physically. Historians agree on this. And then what are we to make of the claims? I tell you this morning, I am convicted that the substantial pool of witnesses, the longevity and durability of the conviction, no Roman advantage, no Jewish advantage, the, the inclusion of embarrassing fear and doubt, the presence of female witnesses and a willingness to stand up for this testimony even in the face of uh, horrible death and the elimination of everything that they knew. 
it seems to me that the most logical explanation, the most logical reaction to the story of Jesus' resurrection that we celebrate this Easter weekend is, it happened. It's true. It's true. So then to the second question. If it's true, why does it matter? This week, our community has marinated in death. This week, our fellowship has nearly drowned in tears. On Sunday, there was a memorial service. On Monday, as I sat in front of my computer with open Bible writing this sermon, my cell phone pinged. Alex, your friend has died of cancer. Another few moments go by. My cell phone pinged. Alex, your college classmate just had a fatal heart attack. A few minutes later, my phone pinged. Oh, did you hear someone? Yeah, they just died in a tragic car accident. Monday. And then Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. The gates of hell opened up on our community. And i got to tell you, on behalf of the pastors and others who have sat in hospitals, observing unspeakable grief with moms and dads and brothers and sisters sitting in the pit of hell, I tell you, it's been quite a week. This world is not okay. It is not okay. This is unacceptable. I read just a few days ago the recollection of some Holocaust survivors. And there was one woman by the name of Edith and she had spent time the camp at Auschwitz. And after a long period of time, she, uh, along with many other women, were pushed into a cattle car, sent off to another work camp. And this was her recollection of the journey. Listen to her words. She said, one morning, I, I think it was morning or early afternoon, we arrived. The train stopped for an hour. Why, we didn't know. And a friend of mine said, why don't you stand up? There was just a little window with bars. And I said, I can't. I don't have enough energy to climb up. And she said, I'm going to sit down, and you're going to stand on my shoulders. And I did. 
And I looked out, and I saw paradise. The sun was bright and vivid. There was cleanliness all over. It was a station somewhere in Germany. There were three or four people there. One woman had a child, nicely dressed up. The child was crying. People were people, not animals. And I thought paradise must look like this. I forgot already how normal people look like, how they act, how they speak, how they dress. Oh, I saw the sun in Auschwitz. I saw the sun come up because we had to get up at four in the morning. But it was never beautiful to me. I never saw it shine. It was just the beginning of a horrible day. And in the evening, the end of what? But here there was life. And I had such yearning. I still feel it in my bones. I had such yearning to live, to run, to just run away and never come back, to run to the end where there is no way back. And I told the girls, I said, girls, you have no idea how beautiful the sun is. This world is not okay. We find ourselves in a cattle car of an existence, living together with unspeakable pain and suffering. The resurrection is true, but why does it matter? Brothers and sisters, it's the window. It's the window that God has provided through Jesus Christ that we might catch a glimpse of what's possible, that we might see just a little bit of what's coming. This is precisely what the early Christians said. They said, Jesus, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but Jesus is just the first fruits. Jesus is just an example, a little window of what's to come. Jesus is showing us what our future will look like. Oh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that brilliance that you see being raised from that tomb. Jesus, yes, the story of Jesus shows us, brothers and sisters. We climb up on top of each other and we look out that window and we tell this story and we see, yes, there's a better world out there. Yes, there's a heaven out there. Yes, there's a... There's a paradise in our future. That's why the resurrection story is so important. That's why Easter matters. It's our hope. And so we finish with this. You can go see, and here's a picture, Herod the Great's Caesarea. Stone put together just a few years before the birth of Jesus Christ. We can also go see, as I have, Emperor Hadrian's Wall, built just a few years after his life on earth. But it is not the historical stone of Herod or Hadrian that they have left for us. No, it is the stone of our Heavenly Father that we cannot locate. For He took it away from that cave. 
It is that stone that we can no longer find because he took it away forever and so symbolized that death will not have the final say, that the grave will not have the final say so. No, it is the stone that was removed. It is the story behind the stone that gives us hope. And so we sing hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because God has acted in our past. Because God in Jesus is with us in the present moment. And because God pledges that he will come again. That Jesus will be here the window thrown wide open into a whole new world. These things I tell you today are true.